Well, I'm very glad to be back. Can you hear me? Yes, you can. Boom. When I left a few weeks ago, I told you that I would miss you and I would pray for you. And in the Lord, I'm very pleased to tell you that I missed you and I have prayed for you. Because this church means a great deal to me. I love being here. I have been greeted with graciousness and smiles and happiness and hugs and new people. I'm glad to meet Justin and Annabelle. She doesn't know I know her name, but I do. But I'm very glad that you guys are here to help us with the music. And Belinda and the choir and the musicians are doing an excellent job. I think they deserve another round of applause. I deeply appreciate the staff here. I've got to tell you a little bit of a personal thing. Uh, Scott and Amy and Beth and Belinda have really treated me with a lot of kindness. And we have joked some in the past about the water deal. Well, I've got another little episode to tell you. If you notice here, I have a bigger bottle of water today. Now, the reason for that, you'll have to talk to Beth about that. I'm going to throw her under the bus today uh, in love and in appreciation because Amy is out of town. She's on vacation with her husband, for which we're very thankful. And they told me a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, that, that Beth would be taking care of, quote, the water detail this morning. And so as I was sitting back in the office, I hear this very pleasant voice saying, Don, are you back there? Yes, come on back. And Amy, I mean, excuse me, Beth walks in with two bottles of water of this caliber. Now, I don't want to throw any stones, but it's a little different and bigger and a little fancier than what I've been getting. And so now I realize that we have some friendly competition between these two fine ladies. And so now Beth even took a picture of the two bottles sitting on the desk. And she told me that this one that I'm holding is called Living Waters, which I really appreciate that since it's going to be part of my sermon today. And the other bottle that I left back there, and this was a little different, she said, since I'm preaching today, this was her word, since I'm preaching today, this other bottle of water was called smart water. <laughs> I don't take anything personally, folks. <laughs> but isn't that nice to have that kind of fellowship and playfulness among the family? I am from and have blessings of a big family, uh, 13 grandchildren, five great-grandchildren. Uh, we got a crowd. But we just love to tease and play and pick at each other in a loving way, and I love to do that and also receive that. So uh, I'm very thankful for Scott and Amy and Beth and Belinda and the work that they do here for this church family. So it is a joy to be back with you folks. I have 
been blessed as I have come here to preach in many, many ways. But one of the main ways I want to tell you about, because I guess I've preached now, I don't know, 10 or 12 times in the last three or four months. Every single time I have preached for you folks, I have known exactly what the Lord wanted me to say. Now, I don't say that in any kind of personal way. I say that to honor the Lord because it's his church and we are his servants and we are his people. And I and you, we want to do what the Lord says. It's not about the human being. It's about the spirit of the Lord, his guidance and his plan for all of us. And I've known and when I found out a few weeks ago that I was going to preach three times, you got me three times in the month of September, for which I'm very thankful today, and then the 18th and the 25th. I began praying about what I was to preach, and I knew that he would show me something. Reading an article by a fellow by the name of Mike Evans, who is a executive director of what's called the Jerusalem Prayer Team, and also they have what they call the Friends of Zion. This is a ministry that is headquartered and located in Jerusalem for ministry to the Jewish people, for which I totally believe in, because they are our heritage. They are our ancestors. And I was reading an article by him, and he indicated in such a powerful way that it was absolutely necessary for you and me as Christian people to be radical about our faith. Now, radical. A lot of times people think that is a negative term, but not in the way we're going to look at it. But when I read that, and he said we need to be radical about our humility, our obedience, our love, and our forgiveness. And that's what I'm going to preach on the next two Sundays. Well, not next week, but the two toward the end of the month. Today, we're going to lay a foundation as I talk to you and share scriptures and thoughts with you about the origin of being radical, and that is the radical Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that for a second because sometimes people think radical is a negative term, but not when we apply it to Jesus Christ. Because he was maybe, in fact, I'm going to take away the maybe, he was and is the most radical person in the history of human beings. Because he stepped into this world 2,000 years ago, and in the scripture that was read for us earlier, he said very specifically to those Jewish people, mainly many of them Pharisees, he was radical in front of the Pharisees all the time. And he said, the Father and I are one. If you want to talk to people about the divinity of Jesus Christ, go to that scripture in the chapter 10 of John and see Jesus himself admitting and declaring boldly, radically, if you will, that he is God. 
And then in the first chapter of John, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word has been with God forever, eternally, before, now, and forever. Does that sound like a radical statement to you? It does to me. And Jesus spent his time here on earth proving, showing, demonstrating, teaching that he and his people, now you better hang on here because this means that you and I, he taught us that we, his people, are to be radical also. Now, sometimes being radical is a strain, folks. It's a bit of a task. It's a little bit of a work proposition. For some of us, being radical does not come very easily or comfortably. Yet, remember, back when I first started coming here, we talked about being disciples of Jesus Christ. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, you and I are to be imitators of Jesus Christ. And so it occurs to me that if we're to be imitators of one that is radical, then we need to be radical. Seems to make pretty good logical sense. And so part of what I want to say to you today is that because Jesus has already demonstrated his radical nature, that you and I are to learn from that. Now, what does radical mean? I want to just take a little definitions and tie them into Scripture for a moment. I went and looked, uh, you know, online at the definitions of some of these things. And radical, I picked four or five characteristics or concepts of being radical, and I share them with you. First, one that is radical is profound. That means operating and thinking and teaching at a very deep level with great insight and knowledge. Profound. Was Jesus profound? Absolutely. In his teachings, many, many times people were amazed. What did they say to him at the end of chapter 7? Chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the last phrase of chapter 7 says, The crowds that heard Jesus' teaching were amazed at his teachings because he taught as someone with authority. Radical, deep, profound. And they even said, with authority, not as if the teachers of the law... No, they don't teach with that kind of authority. And so they saw Jesus as profound, which I would propose indicates his radical nature. Secondly, one that's radical is progressive. They're involving themselves in new ideas and new opportunities and new, new movements all about them. Something that is new, not so much what we've always done before. Now think about some of the things that Jesus said. There are many, many things that you would recall that he taught and said and did that were brand new, but just, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He even used phrases. He said, you have heard long ago that it was said, don't murder. But now I tell you, do you see the, the progression there? Long ago said, just don't murder. But now I tell you, if you carry anger against your brother or sister, or if you have hatred, or if you call them a fool, then you will be subject to judgment. There's a progression. And he said similar phrases related to adultery and divorce. And what about you, were, you heard long ago that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If an evil person strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Sound radical to you? Yes. All my life, I've been kind of a big, strong man. And when I was young, I am sorry to admit that I was a fighter. Somebody strike me on the cheek, I'm going to bust them back. That's a human way. That's not God's way. Now, rest assured, it's been a long, long time before since I've ever hit anybody. Okay, so, but he's saying, turn the other cheek. That's a radical statement. He's saying, you have heard that you're supposed to love your neighbors but hate your enemies. But what I want to tell you is, Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. See the progression? Used to, you could love your neighbors, those people who were kind to you, but you were going to hate your neighbors. But now Jesus is saying, no. You're to love your enemies. You're to love your enemies. And you're to, to pray for those that persecute you. Progression. Went on to say, don't do your... Your deeds, your needs as you take care of needy people, don't do it in front of people. Don't do it for your own reward. Do it in secret and you will get your reward. What about praying? He says, in the past and forever, people have prayed on the street corners and in the synagogues and they prayed with much babbling as pagans do. Not to be. You're to go into your closet and pray in your father. Pray to your Father in secret, and there you will get your reward. Then he went on, progression, doing it differently. He said, don't worry. What? Jesus, we all worry. He said, you are not to worry because God will take care of you. And Matthew 6.33 is a wonderful statement. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, meaning Jesus Christ and all of his ways, and you will have all of what you need. Isn't that a progressive thought? Amen? One for all of us. Because I know you worry. I used to worry terribly, just like everybody else. Don't do it anymore. Not worth it. And then he said, Oh my goodness, what a progression this is. The radical person is progressive. He said, do not judge, because if you judge, then you're going to be judged. He says, why do you keep looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you got a board in your own eye? 
If you take the board out of your eye, then you'll be better able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see the progression there? It's just over and over and over. New ideas, new opportunities, new ministries, new way. That's radical. The next thing that I will tell you is that Jesus was a revolutionary. Now, how do you feel about that? Because that means you and I are supposed to be revolutionaries. We're supposed to be about creating dramatic, drastic changes. Because that's what Jesus did. Now, I propose to you that his main revolution was a revolution of righteousness. There's no righteousness in you or me. There was no righteousness in the Pharisees and all of their 613 laws and rules and regulations. There's no righteousness there. That was all legalism. But Jesus came on the scene and he said, if you will believe in me, then, and here's a fancy word, I will impute righteousness into you. And so every one of us in this room, I trust, is a believer in Jesus Christ. And that means because of his presence in my life, in your life, then we have righteousness. And that is revolutionary. That is radical. And for that, we need to be deeply thankful. Next, Jesus is uncompromising. Now, we believe, and sometimes it is legitimate to compromise. But not when it comes to absolutes. And Jesus taught us about absolutes. He taught us that we are to do certain things, believe certain things, act certain ways that are absolute. And there is not to be any compromise. And he demonstrated that because he had all sorts of opportunities to compromise. Think of all the challenges he got, the questions he got from particularly the Pharisees. Think about his temptation with Satan in the wilderness. Compromise, compromise, compromise. He did not. Because a radical person is not going to compromise. Because compromise is accepting something that is of a lower standard. And people are asking you to accept that lower standard. And Jesus said, no. There are absolutes, and I'm going to live that way. And he was consistent and constant and uncompromising all the way to the point where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Does that sound like a compromise? No, indeed. He said there is one way, and no bending that one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No compromise. And the last thing I'll tell you, and then we're going to look at some great examples of his radical nature. But he was not one that lived according to tradition. Now, this is a little tough because we all sort of like tradition. Do you know in the church, and this is kind of a harsh definition, but I read this somewhere, and it makes sense to me, but in the church particularly, a tradition is something, uh, a, a doctrine, an activity, an item that is believed to be sacred and divine, but is found nowhere in the Bible. 
Uh, now I want you to think about that, and I'm going to tell you a quick story. I got, I got two hours, right, folks? Uh, I wish. Quick story. I was the transitional interim pastor of a very large church in this area, and when I got there, I knew several people in the church. I'd been there to worship. I knew this was happening. When I got there, they had a pulpit desk that was six feet from side to side and four feet high sitting up on their platform. As big as I am, you could hardly see me. And I don't feel good about being behind a pulpit. I'm a counselor. I sit in my office. And I look face to face with the people with whom I deal. I want to do that with you folks. That's why I sit up here like this. I had that pulpit removed the second week that I was there. It caused a stir, as it usually does in churches. And I put up with a stir. And, but we had great worship. There were weeks and months of music and prayers and God blessed our, my preaching and it was from scripture. There was God's spirit, the Holy Spirit in that place over and over and over. And about six months into my tenure there, one dear man came and he said, Dr. Solomon, I've got to talk to you. And I thought, oh boy, here it comes. He came in my office. I don't mind people talking to me. The only way you can bother me is if you need to talk to me and you don't. And you go out there in the parking lot and you talk to me. That bothers me. But this fellow came in. He sat down in front of me. Fine man, teacher, Sunday school teacher, deacon in the church. He said, Dr. Solomon, our sanctuary has lost all spirit of worship and devotion. I mean, people had been changed. People had been saved. God's spirit was there. And I thought, what in the world? And he said, we have got to have our pulpit back in that sanctuary. And if you will put that pulpit back in our sanctuary, then we will be back to being a sacred people of, of God. I was astounded. I, I knew it caused a stir, but that one was way over my head. Because it wasn't that piece of furniture. It was the Spirit of God, the Scriptures, the worship, the people of God, the ministry, the preaching, God's blessings. That was what made it right. But a tradition that is declared divine when it's not found in Scripture. I will tell you, and if you want to talk to me about this, you certainly may. In Scripture, there's one place in the entire Bible where it sort of indicates a pulpit. In the book of Nehemiah, over in the Old Testament, they built a platform for Ezra, the prophet, for him to stand in front of thousands of people to read the book of the law. That's the only place in Scripture that they can even say it was sort of like a pulpit. We want God's spirit. We want God's truth. We want God's word. We want, 
Now, if we have a pulpit, God bless us. But please be careful about tradition because Jesus in his radical nature was not in favor of tradition. Now, quickly, let me remind you of two or three places where Jesus demonstrated because he demonstrated his ministry to people, to people who were in need and needed his presence. You know these stories. I will just remind you. The Samaritan woman. That passage of scripture in the fourth chapter of John starts off by saying Jesus had to go through Samaria. That is not true. Jewish people went around Samaria all the time because they did not believe in the Samaritan people. They were half-breeds. And what did Jesus do with not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman? He went and said, give me a drink of water. And he took that all the way to the point where he taught her about living water. And he said to this woman, if you would know who I am and what I am, and that if you would drink the living water that I offer to you, you would never be thirsty again. Jesus Christ ministered to people. And then he said to the woman, go and get your husband, you know. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying that because you've had five. And now the one that you're with is not even your husband. But in the midst of that, what happened to that Samaritan woman and the people of her community? She recognized that Jesus was the Christ. That was his message. That was his radical way. He would go into the places. Now, did the Pharisees know that he had gone through Samaria? I guarantee you they did. Now, he was up in Galilee, and he had to go down to Judea. Samaria is right in between. But the way the Pharisees were, they were checking on him all the time. And I promise you, they knew that he had encountered this Samaritan woman and that he not only encountered her, but he stayed there for two days in the community with the Samaritan pe people. Radical. What did he do with the woman that was caught in adultery? He's sitting in the temple and he's teaching and the Pharisees bring this woman in caught in adultery. They knew that she had been sinning. And they said, Jesus, Moses tells us that we're to stone this woman. What do you say? Did Jesus say anything? No. Not right then. Because what he did is he leaned down. He was sitting, by the way, teaching. And he leaned down and he started to write in the dirt. And they kept asking him questions, questions. Even maybe harassments are disagreeing with him. And he's writing in the dirt. And he looks up at these Pharisees, these people that were always after him. And he said, any of you that have no sin in your life, 
you throw the first stone. And then he leaned back down and he started writing in the dirt again. And just one by one, these several Pharisees began to sort of slink off into the distance. And he raised up and he looked at the woman, surely hurting, embarrassed, humiliated by all of this. And he said, where are your accusers? Does anyone condemn you? And she says, no, sir, no one. And Jesus Christ, the perfect man of God, looked at that sinful woman and said, then I do not condemn you either. Go and leave your sinful life. You think that's radical? Absolutely that's radical. And right in the front of the traditionalists, they're called Pharisees. And they were out to get him all the way. Jesus healed a blind man, a blind man from birth. And his disciples said, well, who sinned? His parents or himself? You know, that sounds like Christian people sometimes, even though these were the disciples of Jesus. Jesus said, no, this is happening so that the power of God can be shown in this man's life. And he put mud in his eyes with saliva, spit. And he said, now go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the blind man did, been blind from birth, don't know how old he was, but let's say he's 40 years old. And he could see, and it started, it started a firestorm in his neighborhood. Isn't this the man that lives on the street? And doesn't he usually sit at the temple and beg, blind as he is? Now he can see. How did he get to see? What's happened to him? Who did this? How did it come about? And they even thought maybe it was, he was a phony, that it was somebody masquerading as the man that had been blind. But no, it was the blind man who now could see. Now the Pharisees, they, they reported the man to the Pharisees. They took him to the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees investigated. You know why? Partly. Because what was the day that this healing took place? It was a Sabbath and one of the Pharisees, well, probably several of the Pharisees said, well, he healed, he mixed up mud on, on the Sabbath, and so surely he's not a man of God. He doesn't believe in the Sabbath. Well, now, folks, wait a minute. Is it better to follow a tradition or better to heal a blind man or to share something needy or to do something that is ministry of the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Well, you know the answer to that. But Jesus was radical. He healed on the Sabbath day, breaking the rules. And they asked, the Pharisees asked the man, well, what, who did this and how did you do it? And he told them. And they asked him again and he told them again. And the, the blind man or the one that was blind that now he's seeing, he said to the Pharisees, you keep asking me this, you must want to be his disciple. Oh, that did him a lot of good. 
And they got angry and they hurled insults at the man that had been blind. And then Jesus, they threw the man out of the, the synagogue. And Jesus heard about that and he encountered the blind man again. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ? And the blind man, the man who was blind said, well, if I could see him, if I... And Jesus said, it's the one that's speaking to you right now. And he said, I believe and I am worshiping you. Jesus Christ led this man that had been blind to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. I wish that I could have been there. Radical. And Jesus demonstrated that all the way to the end of his ministry. And he presented something to you and me that he held before the Pharisees and all the people that again demonstrated his radical nature because he said that believers in me must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, yes, that is in Scripture. And it is a bit of a harsh kind of statement. And we're told in Scripture that when he said this and taught this, he was very emphatic about that. And some of the people said, I just can't take that. I cannot accept that. And it says that many of his followers walked away. Now, we're going to come to this table here in just a a minute and we're going to take the symbols of his flesh and his blood because what he was saying to those people and what he says to you and me that in doing this you're taking me in as a part of you and I am becoming a part of you and you are becoming a part of me and it is the same concept that we see in the 15th chapter of John where it says abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Well, that's what this is. We're remembering the radical nature of Jesus Christ. And we're accepting the symbols of his flesh and his broken body. Now, the last statement of what happened when those people walked away after he taught about the flesh and the blood, he turned to his followers, the disciples, the twelve. And he said, are you going to walk away also? And Peter, God bless him, this was one of his high points. He said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of truth. You are truly the Son of God. Amen. And amen. Now I want to pray for us. And then we're going to share this beautiful statement of the sacrifice. We're going to remember Jesus Christ and all that he gave to us in his broken body and his spilt blood. Please join me as I pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the stories. I thank you for the truth. 
I thank you for your radical nature and your demonstration and your teaching and your example of all that you have given us through Scripture. We are believers in you. We are Christians. I'm so thankful for this group. I'm so thankful for the worship of today. I'm so thankful for Scott's scripture and prayer that he led us in earlier. I'm so thankful that you draw us to yourself and ask us to be radical. Ask us to be deep, significant believers following you every step of the way. And now we come to this powerful moment of remembering you and remembering your sacrifice and remembering and taking the symbols of your broken body and your spilled blood. Thank you. Thank you for what you've given us in so many, many, many ways. And we come, I pray, every one of us, with a statement of giving ourselves sacrificially to you and to your kingdom and to your church in total right spirit of following you and your ways. Thank you for allowing us to do that. And bless us all as we take of these elements. And we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, one word before we share these elements. Please take a moment of silence and examine yourself and commit yourself to the truth of Jesus Christ. Just be silent for just a moment. 